Hello, hello. Nice to see you all. Just want to make sure the sound is okay. How is it at the back? Good. Thank you. Oh, it's just great to be with you all on this quiet Sunday evening. And I know a few teachers have said it already, but the stillness and the silence in here, it's inspiring. And I know some of you have done quite a few long retreats, so you know it's not always the case. The whole can feel quite different at different times. So it's good to take in, to appreciate the beneficial conditions that we've got here. So as I think I may have mentioned in my first talk, I realize that this year is 20 years since my first three-month retreat here at IMS. So it's just been on my mind a bit, just kind of percolating around, reflecting on that first experience of long retreat, all the intense challenges of it and the incredible rewards. And one aspect of that retreat that I found pretty confronting was the gap between my expectations about what I thought was supposed to be happening and my actual experience. So I have no idea where I got this idea from, but I really believed that practice was supposed to develop in this nice, straight, diagonal line. You could chart it on a graph, and along the bottom was the number of hours spent meditating, and on the other axis was the closer progression to nibbana. And so... (laughs) This is what was supposed to happen. Kind of like an escalator. You just hopped on the escalator and at some point there'd be a floor called Nibbana and you'd get off there. Not that I had the faintest idea what Nibbana meant at that point. Maybe something in the terrain of ease and happiness and bliss. And occasionally I would have a few moments of ease and happiness and bliss. And then something would happen and boom, I'd be right back in misery for hours, sometimes days. And it felt like I was on this crazy roller coaster ride. Or I saw this image in a movie once. You know those weird mechanical bowls that you have? Those bucking bronco kind of things that are in bars? And you sort of get on them and they thrash around and try and toss you off. I felt like that at times, like I was just hanging on for dear life. And this practice was all kinds of cruel twists and turns. And I'd flip from pleasant experiences to unpleasant, from liking to disliking, wanting, not wanting, loving, hating, clinging, resisting, over and over and over again. It's definitely not comfortable. But eventually I realized it's actually one of the benefits of longer retreats. We get to see these patterns and rhythms and reactions playing out so many times that eventually we just can't take them as seriously anymore. And because those patterns do tend to repeat themselves, we get many opportunities to investigate them, many opportunities to start to understand how are these chain reactions? How do they keep happening? And then eventually we're no longer at the mercy of all of that reactivity. We start to have more agency, more choice in how we respond. And we can even start to steer our responses in a more positive direction. And then the wild ride starts to calm down. And as many of you know, already are experiencing everything becomes so much smoother. So tonight I wanted to take a look, a closer look at one particular factor factor in those chain reactions. And it's the factor of Vedana or feeling tone. Now, I'm pretty sure you all have heard about this before. So just briefly, Vedana is that very basic recognition of any experience at any of the sense doors as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. In other words, neutral. So as you know, every single sense contact we have, every sight and sound and smell, every taste, every physical sensation, every mental activity, our nervous systems immediately register it in this way. And this is just happening automatically. 
It's a function of our human biology. It's a function of having this kind of nervous system. And even if we wanted to, we can't stop this Vedana from happening. But what we can do, what we can do something about is our tendency to react automatically to those basic stimuli. So on one level, it's pretty obvious. I'm sure you've all seen this in your own experience many times. If something registers as pleasant, what's the automatic response? Cling, hold on, prolong. If it's unpleasant, the opposite. Push it away, get rid of it, resist it. If it's neutral, we don't even notice it. Or we disconnect, we space out, we go looking for something more stimulating to pay attention to. Now, from what I understand, this basic level of categorizing happens in the more primitive part of our brain, our reptilian brain. And it seems to have originated from a time in our evolution when we had to very quickly work out whether something was going to eat us, whether we could eat it, or whether we could safely ignore it or maybe mate with it. So pretty basic kind of functioning of the mind. And as the brain evolved, that basic fight-flight-freeze response stayed with us. We just learned to overlay it with apparently more sophisticated reasons and rationales for doing what we do. So I don't know about for you, but in my own practice, it was pretty humbling to learn about Vedana and to recognize it playing out in my own experience. Actually, it wasn't humbling, it was humiliating. (laughs) Because before I found out about Vedana, I truly believed that I was a sophisticated human being and that I was making informed and intelligent choices in relation to my complex and sophisticated life. But when I started paying attention to Vedana, I realized I'm not that different from an amoeba. You know, a single-celled amoeba sort of blobs towards what it likes and blobs away from what it doesn't like and nothing much is happening. It just sort of blobs around in circles. And I'm pretty much doing the same. I realize the main difference between me and an amoeba is the delusion that I'm a highly functioning, sophisticated (laughs) organism. Now, maybe you think I'm exaggerating, but... Check it out for yourselves. Think back over some of the choices you made today. If you investigate them with mindfulness, chances are you'll see that pretty much everything you did was motivated underneath by this movement towards pleasant experiences, away from unpleasant experiences, or if neutral, going after something more exciting. So this quality of feeling tone, it's deceptively simple, but it plays such an important role in fueling all of our reactivity when there's no mindfulness. And I think this is why the Buddha probably included it as a whole establishment of mindfulness. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it's the second of the four establishments of mindfulness. It's also the second of the five clinging aggregates that I briefly mentioned in my first talk. And I know because most of you have some familiarity with this, I'm not going to try and give a comprehensive, detailed overview. What I'd like to do is just look at two aspects of Vedana as a mindfulness practice and as a clinging aggregate. So what the Buddha was trying to do with all these different lists of aspects of experience is help us to understand the process by which we get caught in clinging and resisting and identifying and therefore suffering. So without any meditation training, most people tend to think of themselves as a fixed, solid me in here who's trying to navigate the challenges of the world out there. Maybe you can remember back to before you started meditating. And maybe there were times you just felt totally at the mercy of life's ups and downs and rewards and challenges, as I felt at the start of that first three-month retreat. But as I started to understand how to pay attention to the body 
and to feeling tones and to the mind and to dhammas or categories of experience, as I trained in knowing them just as they are, there started to be more agency. So in many ways, the Buddha was a master of deconstruction. He's showing us how to separate out just the blur of everyday experience, separate it into its component aspects so that we can manage those different aspects more easily. In fact, the Pali word that's usually translated as vipassana, the Pali word, sorry, vipassana that's usually translated as insight, it also literally means seeing distinctly or seeing separately. So here we're separating out Vedana and seeing how it fuels reactivity. So pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, very quickly goes into liking, disliking, spacing out. And then because of the body-mind interaction, multiple feedback loops start to build very quickly. And if they're not seen, they propel us into what's known as papancha. I don't know if you've heard that term (laughs) a few times already. Proliferation, or there's another word, perseveration. I quite like perseveration is a continuation of something to an extreme degree or beyond a desired point. So this is papancha, the tendency of the mind to fall into compulsive looping and spinning out in reactivity, and in that process, losing contact with actual reality. So I'm going to make a big assumption that... All of you have experienced at least one experience of papancha during this retreat. (laughs) So just to see, to explore with a simple hypothetical example how it might show up to see how papancha might work. Say you're just sitting in the hall here after supper. You're just innocently paying attention to your breath. And then suddenly there's a sharp sensation in the chest just an unpleasant physical sensation. But instead of recognizing it as just that, you try to ignore it, and then you tell yourself, it's probably just heartburn. I knew I shouldn't have eaten all that cheese today. Then a few minutes later, it comes up again. And then the mind goes, what if this is the beginning of a heart attack? Unpleasant thought. Not recognized as an unpleasant thought. Then there's a pulse of anxiety, an unpleasant emotion, not recognized as unpleasant emotion. And that starts to set off unpleasant sensations in the body. And now you're experiencing clamminess in the hands and queasiness and shortness of breath. And then that extra thought comes, aren't those all the signs of a heart attack? (laughs) And then before you know it, your mind has created this entire scenario where you're riding to hospital in the back of an ambulance and you're being wheeled into surgery down these long corridors, just like a scene from ER. And then you wake up surrounded by tearful family members and friends. (laughs) And they're ecstatic to see that you're still alive and you all live happily ever after. Pretty obviously, papancha, proliferation. But hopefully you saw there were many points along that chain reaction where if the feeling tone had just been recognized for what it was, a whole pile of unnecessary suffering could have been avoided. And this is a training. So in some ways I think of papancha as a kind of a mindfulness bell that's warning us when we've lost contact with reality. And one of my teachers, Gil Fronsdal, he has a way of laying out these different layers of experience that I found really helpful in my own practice. So he organizes different kinds of experience as um, like on a wheel. So if you imagine a wheel lying on its side, and at the center, at the hub of the wheel, is our experience of the body and mindfulness of breathing. So that's in the middle. And then at the outer rim of the wheel is our experience of papancha, of proliferation, of spinning out. That's why it's on the outer rim. 
And then in between the body at the center of the wheel and the papancha at the rim, there are concentric circles of experience. So closest to the hub of the wheel, the next circle out, there are the six senses coming together with Vedana, feeling tone. So at this point, we're still pretty close to the immediacy of physical experience. But then in the next circle out is all our mental activity, our thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states. And these can start to have a sort of a centrifugal force that pushes us out onto the rim, to papancha, to proliferation. And what I like about this model, I don't know if you've got a sense of it, is that it clearly shows that the further we get from our direct body, sense-based experience, the more likely we are to get lost in mental reactivity. And sometimes we can feel that force kind of pulling us outwards towards that proliferation. And when we're on the rim, we get taken for a ride, looping and spinning and obsessing. It can feel like a wild ride. By contrast, the hub of the wheel, the center, the body, the breathing, feels so much more stable. The center of the wheel at least feels to move more slowly than the rim. So in your meditation practice, when you find yourself caught in papancha, let that be an indication. Come back to the center of the wheel. Come back to the body. Stay with just the breathing, just the physical sensations, just seeing and hearing. And from the center, it's so much easier to know Vedana as simply Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experiences arising, passing away, and we don't get as hooked in them. So in that experience of fantasizing or getting lost in anxiety about a heart attack, if in those very first stabbing sensations we could have just stayed with, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant, just unpleasant feeling tone being known, just that can stop the push into proliferation in its tracks. Does this make sense? Easy to say, like so much of these practices, not so easy to do, but so worth it. Just imagine how much stress and distress and suffering we'd save ourselves if we were able to just stay with the immediacy of feeling tone. We can see that compulsive propulsion into reactivity, not only in our own experience, but in broader society too. I think it's fair to say that every problem, every conflict, every war can be traced back to our collective lack of ability to relate skillfully to this simple aspect of experience. So paying attention to Vedana also has an ethical dimension to it. It strengthens non-harming. So as you all know, I think... When there's no mindfulness and we react on autopilot, the danger of these three feeling tones is because of the old adage, neurons that fire together, wire together. Every time we react on autopilot, we're strengthening those neural pathways that tend to lead towards the three core afflictive energies of greed or compulsion, hatred or aversion, and ignorance or delusion. So again, pretty obvious. If we don't notice unpleasant feeling tone, where does it go? Not liking, not wanting, solidifying into aversion or hatred. Pleasant feeling tones, automatically going to liking. And then, if there's no mindfulness, compulsion and greed get strengthened. And neutral, when there's no mindfulness, we space out, delusion or ignorance gets strengthened. So these feeling tones have the power to constantly shape our experience, similar to how Brian spoke of last night in relation to perception. 
In fact, feeling tones are a very basic form of perception, but they have this powerful effect on how we see the world and on how we see ourselves. So what I'd like to do now is just explore the role that Vedana can have in constructing and reinforcing a fixed sense of self. So as I mentioned, Vedana is also the second of the five clinging aggregates. And to get a sense of how we identify with feeling tones, we can see this most obviously in relation to pleasant and unpleasant Vedana. Again, when there's no mindfulness, these basic reactions trigger liking, disliking, preferences. And then very often we cling to those preferences, even build an identity out of them, taking them to be me, mine, who I am. So, for example, I'm the one who dislikes talkback radio, or I'm the one who loves learning new languages. They become who I am. And sometimes we don't recognize this clinging to preferences until it gets challenged in some way. I don't know, have you ever had an experience of having a good friend and then finding out that they love something that you hate? And it's kind of like, what? (laughs) A few years ago, I went to an art house movie with a group of friends, I think six or maybe eight of us, I can't remember. But it was a pretty polarizing movie. And afterwards, we were standing outside the movie theater just talking about how much, I think half the group loved it, half the group loathed it. And for a couple of people, the intensity of their reaction and their clinging to that reaction created a huge argument with each other. And sadly, as far as I know, that was the end of their friendship. They never spoke again, all because of clinging to likes, dislikes, preferences. So just to bring that a little closer to home, to our retreat life here, an experience of my own of just how strongly we can cling to our likes and dislikes and at times build a whole identity out of them. So this happened in one of the first nine-day retreats I ever did a few years ago now, quite a few years ago, in another country. And it was a retreat center a little similar to here, So at the start of the retreat, we had all these orientation talks and we were told, please just stay out of the kitchen unless you have a mindfulness job in there. And please only take food that's offered in the dining room. Don't go into the kitchen. So I took all that in and then at breakfast on the first morning, I noticed a meditator get up, go into the kitchen and just help herself to something that I was pretty sure wasn't freely offered. And I was pretty new to practice at that time. So I may have heard about the concept of just no thoughts as thoughts. I may even have been told, just mind your own business. (laughs) But I was pretty new to practice and I just got caught in this storm of self-righteousness. And next morning the same thing happened. The same woman got into the kitchen, helped herself to something that she shouldn't have. And again, my mind fired up into all kinds of unskillful proliferation. And again, the beauty and the pain of being on retreat, I got to see this happening day after day after day. And finally, I really recognized the pain of it. So I decided to look at it a bit more objectively. And I thought, this woman just wants to eat the breakfast foods that she likes to eat. And I do too. I like to eat the breakfast foods I like to eat. The only difference is that my foods are available on the right side of the kitchen door. So I started to see this attachment to getting what I wanted, to getting my own preferences, and how much I believed that my preferences were the right ones, and what everyone else should like too. So if other people didn't happen to enjoy cold cereal with yogurt and a cup of black tea without milk or sugar, they're just deeply flawed human beings. (laughs) And as I started exploring all this, I decided to set myself a challenge. So instead of going to breakfast and getting my usual food, I said, told myself, I'll just see whatever the person in front of me takes and take that. 
So if they have oatmeal, I'll eat oatmeal. If they have toast, I'll eat toast. If they have tea with milk in it, I'll have tea with milk in it. And so I did this for the rest of the retreat. And I was surprised sometimes how hard it was. I would sit and I'd drink the tea with milk in it. And I'd notice all the thoughts about how wrong and bad and horrible it was. (laughs) But actually, when I really paid attention to the actual feeling tones, the taste was neutral and, I have to admit, sometimes even surprisingly pleasant. Still, one morning I really hit my limit when the person in front of me put two slices of white bread in the toaster and then started reaching for the peanut butter, which I'm really not so keen on. And my mind was like, no, not the peanut butter. (laughs) Please, no peanut butter. I'm just not a peanut butter kind of girl. And I was like, what? (laughs) What is a peanut butter kind of girl? Why am I... Referring to myself as a girl, and what is all of that? (laughs) All these views and stereotypes and perceptions about food, and again, nothing to do with reality, but all of this had gone in and created an identity of being a peanut butter girl or not. Bizarre. It was so helpful to see all that and to let it go. And eventually I just sat down, ate the toast, ate the peanut butter, no problem. So as always, mindfulness, the first step in the whole process of disidentification. And the more closely we pay attention to this stream of feeling tones arising, passing away, the more obvious it becomes just how changeable and ephemeral they are. And the Buddha reinforced this. There's a famous discourse on the five clinging aggregates where the Buddha uses metaphors that highlight the impermanence, the insubstantiality of all of the aggregates. So for the first one, material form, including the body, he compares it to a lump of foam. And then he likens Vedana, feeling tones, to the bubbles that appear when raindrops fall into a lake. So the actual words, suppose that in the autumn when it's raining in fat, heavy drops, a water bubble were to appear and disappear on the water, and a person with good eyesight were to see it. To that person, seeing it, observing it, examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a water bubble? We know intellectually that There's no substance in feeling tones. But that urge to solidify experience and cling to it, it starts really early in our development. So a couple of years ago, my neighbors bought a birthday gift for their young son. And it was one of those uh, circular wands that you can use for blowing giant soap bubbles. I don't know if you've seen them. And this little boy was maybe two years old. And he'd never seen soap bubbles before and I watched how at first he was totally enchanted he just watched the bubbles emerge from the hoop and glisten with all those rainbow colors and he was mesmerized but then after a little while he started to chase after them and he desperately wanted to catch one of those beautiful bubbles and hold on to it but of course every time he touched them they popped And I watched that kid's delight turn to absolute desperation as he ran around trying to find a bubble that he could keep hold of. And finally, he just collapsed into a wailing heap of misery. (laughs) And I thought, that's us. When there's no mindfulness or insight, that's what we do. Maybe in a slightly more sophisticated way. When we can't accept the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tones, They come and go. There's no lasting satisfaction there. There's no point in trying to hold on. There's no need to resist. And then we can just appreciate the bubbles for what they are. Now again, this is pretty deeply counterintuitive. And I'm sure you all know the classic teaching on the two darts, the metaphor of 
someone being shot by an arrow or a dart and then adding an extra dart of mental reactivity. This is what the, quote, untrained worldling does, someone with no meditative experience. So they get caught up in reactivity to painful experiences. And in the Buddha's words, they worry and grieve, they lament, they beat their breast, weep and are distraught. So they experience two kinds of unpleasant feeling, a bodily and a mental feeling. So I think you're all familiar with that teaching. But there's a second part to that sutta that isn't, um, is often overlooked. It says, having been touched by that painful feeling, they resist and resent it. Under the impact of that painful feeling, they then proceed to enjoy sensual happiness. And why do they do so? An untaught worldling of practitioners does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. Does that ring true for any of you? I know some of you have described it in the practice meetings. After we've had an uncomfortable or a painful sitting, there's just that urge to go and have a nice cup of tea, maybe a cookie or a nap or whatever whatever other limited sense pleasures we can have here. And, you know, in this context, maybe that's harmless enough. But the same sutta goes on to describe how in one who enjoys sensual happiness, an underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie their mind. They do not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, nor the gratification the danger and the escape connected with these feelings, and they are fettered by suffering. This I declare. So what is this pointing to? It's inviting us to develop a more skillful relationship to these feeling tones, to understand their impermanence, and by understanding, quote, the gratification, the danger and the escape, connected with these feeling tones. So this phrase, the gratification, the danger, the escape, it appears many times in the suttas. And to me, it's evidence of the Buddha's pragmatism. He's acknowledging, yet there is gratification. There is gratification in sense pleasures. Otherwise, we wouldn't get caught up in them. And we can see this in our everyday lives. Back home, when something's unpleasant... All of us have our strategies for going to something pleasant. It's a tub of ice cream or a glass of wine or calling a friend or taking a long nap, going for a run, walking the dog, hugging our partner and going shopping, binge-watching TV. I think we all have our own ways of doing this. None of them are necessarily bad in and of themselves. But if we're just compulsively using them to escape unpleasantness, We're reinforcing a kind of dependence on them instead of learning how to meet difficulties in a way that actually leads to more ease, to more freedom. So this is the danger or the drawback that the Buddha is trying to highlight. If we just habitually chase after pleasant experiences to get rid of the unpleasant ones, we tend to stay stuck in our comfort zones and we don't develop the inner resources that help us to stay steady with life's challenges. And maybe that strategy works in the short term, works with smaller challenges, but at some point for all of us, there will be bigger challenges where that avoidance doesn't work anymore. And for sure, all of us are subject to the existential challenges of old age, of sickness, of injury, of death. And if we haven't cultivated any inner strength to meet those challenges, we'll be adding those extra darts. We'll suffer even more. So this is the danger, the drawback of chasing after sense pleasures as an avoidance of the unpleasant. And just to say, there's a caveat here. Sometimes when people hear all of this talk about how pleasant Vedana can condition greed, they can misunderstand it 
it to mean that the Buddha was saying we should never enjoy anything or we should somehow try to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up in case we get attached. But this is a pretty serious misinterpretation. The pleasant experiences in and of themselves, they're not the problem. It's the relationship to them that we want to pay attention to. What might be less obvious is that for some people, pleasant Vedana can actually bring up subtle aversion, resistance, or fear. And this was true in my own practice and also for some of the people I work with. So as you know, our minds have this inbuilt negativity bias. And for some people, this bias is so well developed that they have a hard time even registering pleasant feeling tones. But then on top of that negativity bias, there is often a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. And in the beginning, it took me quite a while to realize that I was actually suspicious of pleasant experiences. I saw them as being unreal and lightweight. And conversely, I saw unpleasant experiences as being reliable and real and true and just how life is. So I had this pretty big bias that took me a while to recognize. And then when I started exploring it in context of Dharma practice, I realized this belief that Dharma practice was supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was actually enjoying something, then almost by definition it couldn't be spiritual, whatever that means. And I think this may have come partly from a somewhat Christian upbringing. And I'm not saying that all forms of Christianity have that attitude, but the way I experienced it was that there's a kind of Puritanism and anything enjoyable was a kind of a sin in some way. And so I brought in this assumption that meditation is supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, supposed to be difficult, supposed to be painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or even pleasant, then obviously I'm doing something wrong. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not going deep enough. I'm not seeing clearly enough. So I just wanted to name that in case any of you might have a similar bias in your own conditioning. And if you do, it can be helpful just to practice the skill of opening to pleasant feeling tones every now and then and to notice if there's any resistance on one hand or clinging on the other. Okay, so coming back to the Buddha's teaching on the gratification, the danger and the escape. We've seen those short-term gratification in sense pleasures and we've seen how if we don't relate to them with wisdom the danger is that they can proliferate into greed and hatred and delusion. So maybe some of you are wondering, well, what's the escape part? That's where we're heading now. So although it's true that the Buddha warned us over and over not to cling to sense-based pleasures, he actually put a huge amount of importance on cultivating skillful, pleasant mental states instead. So these are states such as the four Brahma-Vahara, the seven factors of awakening, the jhana states of deep absorption, just to name a few. And these are all wholesome mental states. And, no coincidence, they're generally experienced as very pleasurable. And this kind of pleasure is not only allowable, it's crucial to the development of this whole path to freedom. So as many of you know, this shift from being dependent on ordinary sense-based pleasure to understanding the importance of skillful mental pleasure was a huge turning point in the Buddha's own path to awakening. I think most of you know the legend of the Buddha's life, and Rebecca shared it the other day. So I'm just going to zoom in to that point where after it said he practiced something like seven years of intense austerity practice and it said the Buddha to be at that point was in constant pain and near to death 
before he finally recognized this wasn't actually getting him any closer to freedom. And next came a recognition, a memory actually, of a pleasant experience that he'd had as a young boy when he was, I think, about eight years old. And according to the legend, he was sitting under a rose apple tree watching his father, the king, take part in a harvest festival. And it was pleasantly cool in the shade of the tree and his body and his mind relaxed. And they relaxed to such an extent that he spontaneously dropped into the first jhana, which is a very pleasant state of mental absorption. And so the Buddha-to-be suddenly wondered, with that pleasant memory, why, are, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. And then he realized at last that mental pleasure had been the missing ingredient. And it said that not long after this realization, he attained complete awakening, complete freedom of heart and mind. So what are the implications of that realization for us here? Coming back to the teachings on Vedana, the Buddha made a crucial distinction between ordinary sense-based or so-called worldly feeling tones and what are sometimes known as unworldly feeling tones. Now, both these sets of feeling tones include pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral Vedana. The distinction is that the so-called worldly feeling tones, the sense-based feeling tones, tend to keep us caught in clinging and resisting, whereas the unworldly feeling tones are more mind-based, mental qualities, and they help us progress towards freedom. So just briefly, I'll give you a couple of examples of each type to hopefully help you get the difference. So starting with pleasant feeling tones, pleasant worldly Vedana come from sense pleasures, delicious food, beautiful artworks, pleasant music, enjoyable activities like sports or dancing or sex and so on. But when we pay closer attention to these worldly feeling tones, we see they're unreliable. The pleasantness that comes from eating pizza can only be stained for, I don't know, two, three, four, maybe five slices before we start to feel sick and that pleasant Vedana flips into unpleasant. Pleasant unworldly Vedana, on the other hand, arises from skillful mental qualities such as the Brahma-Vihara, the awakening factors, the jhanas. And because the, uh, these are mental states, and because they're more refined, they're more sustainable, and they support the deepening of our path to freedom. So do you get that distinction? Similar with unpleasant. Again, in relation to worldly Vedana, Unpleasant feeling tones come from sense-based experiences that we don't like, food that's not tasty, ugly sights, discordant music, painful activities, pretty obvious. Unpleasant, unworldly Vedana are also predominantly mental states, but even though their experience is unpleasant, they're onward leading. So just a few examples the unpleasant experience of feeling remorse for something unskillful that we did. That's the unpleasant mental feeling. But it can spur us to refine our sila, refine our ethical conduct. Or the unpleasant experience of being stuck in a hindrance. That can motivate us to understand how to free ourselves from it, and it becomes a spur to wisdom or the unpleasant experience of being attached or even addicted to sense pleasures. That can give us the impetus to practice renunciation, or as Joseph Goldstein calls it, non-addiction, non-addiction to sense pleasures. So in all of these, although the mental feeling is unpleasant, it has a propensity to help us move towards freedom. And so it's, as I say, onward leading. Then in relation to neutral, 
unworldly Vedana. Again, this is primarily mental. So it's associated with skillful states like calm, equanimity, and peace. There's no reactivity in the mind, no wanting or not wanting. So it's very neutral, but it's leading to greater ease and freedom. So the invitation from the Buddha is to give up the sense-based pleasures in favor of the unworldly pleasures of skillful mental states. And in the Dhammapada it says, if by giving up a lesser happiness one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater And that's the move we're being invited to make here. And we can use this distinction between worldly and unworldly feeling tones to our advantage to help us to reduce our dependence on mundane sense-based pleasures and instead cultivate refined mental states, ones that help us to see clearly and to wake up. So again, just trying to find a practical example of how this might work here on retreat. I haven't been around at the right time, but in the evening, early evening, do some of you still go out and stand on the wall and watch the sunset when it's a nice sunset? It's a pretty pleasant experience, right? Just on an ordinary, worldly level. We can see that as pleasant sense-based feeling tones, obviously at the eye door. The eye takes in all the beautiful colors, the gold and the orange and the red and the pink and the changing, glowing, fading into deep blue. And if there's no mindfulness, you might find yourself getting lost in that visual beauty and pleasantness. Maybe there's an urge to get your phone back so you could take a quick snap and and think about putting it on social media and wondering what your friends might say and if it might get a few likes and maybe they'd be a little bit jealous. On the other hand, if there was enough mindfulness just to receive that pleasant Vedana, the invitation is to turn the attention inwards, away from the visual sights out there, and notice how is that beauty affecting the heart, affecting the mind. And if you do that, you might find, oh, there's a sense of appreciation. There's a sense of contentment. Ah, There's some ease, some calm. Maybe some wonder or awe or openness. Maybe a feeling of connectedness or even peace. And all of these pleasant mind states are examples of unworldly pleasant feeling tones. And they're onward leading. Hopefully you get a sense there of how they might become beneficial to deepening freedom. And these skillful mental states are allowable. So don't be afraid to let them in. Don't be prematurely afraid of clinging to them. Let yourself become familiar with how the heart-mind feels when these wholesome states are there. This is actually an aspect of right effort. You may remember there are four aspects of right effort. And the last one is the effort to maintain wholesome states that have arisen, to prolong them, to increase them, to expand them, and let them come to fulfillment. So we can train in doing that. And just in case some of you may still be skeptical, as I was, that pleasant states can be onward leading, I'd like to close with a quote from Bhikkhu Analio on the importance of joy on this path to freedom. He says, after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be the one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, 
It was precisely the successful eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. The ingenuity of the Buddha's approach was not only his ability to discriminate between forms of happiness and pleasure which are to be pursued and those which are to be avoided, but also his skillful harnessing of non-sensual pleasure for progress along the path to realization. Numerous discourses describe the conditional dependence of wisdom and realization on the presence of non-sensual joy and happiness. According to these descriptions, based on the presence of delight, joy and happiness arise and lead in a causal sequence to concentration and realization. One discourse compares the dynamics of this causal sequence to the natural course of rain falling on a hilltop, gradually filling the streams and the rivers, and finally flowing down to the sea. Once non-sensual joy and happiness have arisen, their presence will lead naturally to concentration and to realization. Conversely, without gladdening the mind when it needs to be gladdened, realization will not be possible. So may we all taste this ever-deepening, non-sensual joy and happiness that leads onwards to complete freedom of heart and mind for the benefit of all. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment. Come back at nine and we can chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta together. So see you then, whoever would like to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.